Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. And it is, it's Shabbat Haggadot. So we're excited about that. We're excited about celebrating the Pesach. All right, so let's let's jump into the lesson here. I don't know if it's even a lesson. I think this qualifies more as a an exhortation. I think I would put it over in that category. I'll let you be the judge. And it's it, again, it's what you don't know can hurt you. And sometimes it's who you don't know can hurt you. And I said that because, you know, Passover is approaching. And we've been doing this series called Footsteps of Messiah, which the text, the working text of the Footsteps of Messiah is the Song of Songs. Even though we work in the weekly Torah portion, sometimes we've got tons of Torah portion teachings on YouTube. There's no shortage there if there's a particular Torah portion you're interested in. But the, the working text has been the Song of Songs. And if you're not aware, the Song of Songs is traditional to read it during the week of Passover, Pesach. It's the love song of the Messiah. It's, it's the love song between the Holy One and his people. And so as, as we're talking about the footsteps of Messiah, drawing closer, 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 what we have found is that the Song of Songs is becoming more and more relevant. It's become a prophetic book to us, not just a pretty book. You know, not just a romantic book. I'm definitely, you know, probably the most beautiful uh, words of the Bible are found in the Song of Songs. But in addition to the prophetic understanding of it that we've been studying, we're finding that it's also giving us very practical advice. In fact, it's advice that we would expect more to come from the book of the Proverbs than this love song called the Song of Songs. With that said, I'd like to talk about some practical things. And these practical things, uh, I'd like to address them. I'd like to speak to them because over the last 23, 24, about 25 years or maybe a little more, I don't know, about the past 25 years, to walk this walk with Messiah, to to learn his word, everything, starting with Genesis 1-1, not starting with Matthew 1-1 starting with Genesis 1-1, to walk in his Shabbat, to walk in his feasts, to walk in the commandments that pertain to us. There's, there's been a, it's a, it's been a long road and most of it has been joyous. There's been a peace in it that I can't even describe to anybody else, but it doesn't mean it hasn't been without some, some problems that uh, anytime there's a new move of the spirit, there's going to be a, a certain element of chaos that accompanies it. There has been no great move of the spirit that wasn't accompanied by a certain degree of chaos. Because again, you're shaking old things out of the way. And often that includes old ways of thinking. Just internalize that. Anytime you're going to have a new move of the spirit, you're going to have to change the way that people think. Because if they were thinking properly, then you wouldn't need the change. You wouldn't need the shaking. So often it's it's not a matter of people are sitting on purpose. It's just that they've been rolling along, doing what they were called to do in their generation, but now the Ruach is ready to move and and shake things up and take people to the next level. And for those who think they have attained, like the assembly of Laodicea and Revelation, they thought they had made it. And they found out they hadn't made it at all. In fact, they had. it was just the opposite. They're believers. Clearly, they're believers. They're keeping some commandments. Clearly, they're keeping some commandments. But then he's saying, no, you're naked. You're not keeping the commandments. So how can we be keeping the commandments, but yet not keeping the commandments? It has to go back to that reevaluation and saying, what is the Spirit trying to do in my generation? And that's what, remember, Peter told in Acts chapter 2. He told the listeners when they said, what must we do? Peter says, you are going to have to be saved from this crooked generation, this wicked and crooked generation. So every generation has its own element of crookedness that he has to wake us up to with the power of his spirit so that we can make the changes that we need to make in our generation to prepare for the changes he'll make in the next. So here's the text I I wanted to work with. We know that King Solomon, Melech Shlomo, is how you say his name in Hebrew. 
that he wrote the Song of Songs as well as the Proverbs. But here's what it says about Solomon or Melech Shlomo in 1 Kings 4.29. It says, now, God gave Solomon wisdom. That word there is chokhmah and very great discernment, tavuna. Tavuna comes from bina. For those of you who have done workbook one, this is old news to you. You know what chokhmah and bina are. It's the first two of the seven spirits that are listed in Isaiah. So Solomon has wisdom and discernment, chokhmah and bina, and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear his, to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Okay, just in that, that short excerpt, um, that spans basically from verse 29 to 34. Listen how often you hear this. Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. And then, of course, we've got Tabuna or Bina. Okay, that's just a tiny little excerpt. But you hear how many times the text says that Melech Shlomo had chokhmah. He had wisdom. And with all this wisdom that he has... And we say, well, why does it need to say it that often? I think we might get a clue right here. With all this wisdom, it says that he spoke. He spoke of trees. He spoke of animals and birds and creepy things and fish. This is what he does with this wisdom and this understanding. He spoke. Now, you're familiar with the word that's used here where it says he spoke devar, devar. Um, Devarim is the fifth book of the Bible. In English, it's Deuteronomy. But Devarim, it means words or things, right? So when he spoke, he's saying words. But if we go back to the root of it, it points out part of the definition. And so I went through Strong's, Brown Driver Briggs, Jacenius. I looked at all three of those and said, is there more to what he's doing here than meets the, the eye? So when he's speaking, what these, these extra resources tell us, it, it does mean to speak, but it also means to put things in order, to range things in order. And then the Jacenius goes on and it says to lead, to guide, especially to lead flocks or herds to pasture. Wow. Okay. So in its simple form, it means to speak in a deeper meaning of it. It means to put things in order. And in another deeper meaning of it, it means to lead a flock or herd to a pasture, to lead them to pasture. Well, this makes a whole lot of sense with the background of our Song of Songs text, because right now we're in chapter four. And the verse that we've been looking at now for several weeks is, your teeth are like a flock of sheep that have come up from their washing, all of them perfect, all of them bear twins. So the subject is the sheep, the sheep of Israel. The great shepherd of the sheep is addressing his sheep and how clean they are when they come up from their washing. And we've looked at different kinds of washing, how they came through the Reed Sea as a nation. And that was a kind of a mikvah, kind of immersion, coming up clean. And then they approach Mount Sinai. And he says, I want you to wash, especially your garments. I want you to prepare and then be ready on the third day. So Devarim, or Deuteronomy, it's it's got this same idea. Moses is giving this last word to the Israelites. And if you've noticed about Devarim or Deuteronomy, it seems to be a recap of a lot of the things that have gone before in terms of what happened, when it happened, how it happened, and then the laws and the precepts, the commandments that were given before, many of them are restated in Devarim. So in a sense, it's like the little scroll. It's the, the summary, the little scroll. Like I said, it means words or things. And so understanding our deeper meaning, Deuteronomy arranges things in an order. They may not be in the same order they appeared in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. You might see things in a little bit different order. They might be ranged in order uh, as Moses declares them. But see, Moses is doing something special right here. They've 
gone through 40 years in the wilderness, and now he's mustering the flock. He's gathering up the flock of Israel, and he's preparing them now to cross the Jordan. So again, they have come up from their washing. They're coming up from the washing of the word, the devar, just like it was prophesied in the Song of Songs. You're going to be like sheep coming up from your washing, right? You say, well, didn't that come later? Yes, but remember, prophecy runs in its cycles. So often a prophecy will be fulfilled more than once. And we might see a specific prophecy and say, wait a minute, didn't that already happen? Yes, it did. But it's still a prophecy and it can happen again. Just like one of the wordplay hints with Yom Kippur, which is literally Yom HaKippurim. Yom HaKippurim. It's the day of atonement. It's the day of coverings. Well, if you break that down, it's a day like Purim. Well, we read about Purim in the scroll of Esther came much later. So how could the day of atonements be a day like Purim? Well, there's going to be an element of prophecy that is going to be established on Yom HaKippurim, and it's going to pop up again in the book of Esther. And so remember, the poor is the lots that were cast, that Haman, may his name be blotted out, he, he cast the lots to find a good day to kill Jews. And you know, the Holy One was going to have no, nothing of that. And so it's a, it's a story of their rescue. But if we go back to Yom HaKippurim, it's also a day of Purim where you have to cast lots for the two goats to find out who's going to die before the Lord and then who's going to be taken outside the community uh, with all the sins pronounced over it. So this is how prophecy works. It's We don't need to get too entrenched in chronologies. When sometimes, like with the book of Devarim, it might rip you right out of the, the chronology you, you thought you knew and say, okay, now I want you to hear it in this order, because you're going to learn something new if you hear it in this order. But there's two ways we can see that the Israelites are about to be washed again, or they have been washed again. Number one, it's just because of the word, because of the devar. As Moses taught them the devar for 40 years in the wilderness, he began to wash them. The word can wash you. Just like Yeshua told his disciples in John 15, 3, you were already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So they're like the sheep coming up from the washing. How else could they be going through a, a wash? Well, oddly, the wilderness that they're walking through, even though it's a desert, it used to be a sea. That's why you can't plant much there. It's the, the soil is too salty from the seabed. And so they came through the Reed Sea on dry land, and in the wilderness, they're walking on dry land, but yet they're walking in a sea, and, and much of that area will be covered in water again one day. When the temple begins to let the water flow, it's going to start to flow down into the Arava. So there's, there's little hints all through there that they've been washing out here in the wilderness in the Word. And so as Yeshua is talking, to his disciples about how he has made them clean with his word in John 15. Uh, we know that this is such an important passage because it's referenced in the other gospels too. And so Yeshua goes on and tells them in Luke 12, 32, which is a recording of the same conversation. He says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. There's many kingdoms out there, but there's the kingdom. And that's the kingdom of heaven. And he says, okay, little flock, you're, you're my little sheep. You're my sheep coming up from their washing. I've, I've washed you clean with the word which I have spoken to you. And if you'll continue walking in this, the father is, he's not just giving you the kingdom begrudgingly, like, well, you made it to the other side of the wilderness. I guess I'll give you something. The father doesn't have that attitude. Yeshua says he's glad to give us the kingdom. He, that's his whole goal was to give us the kingdom, to give us every opportunity to give us the kingdom. But we can't do it as dirty people. We can't be spiritually dirty people. We have to be washed by the washing of the word. And so Yeshua, he's kind of flipped some things around here. We know that Moses or Moshe, he had to, the, the flock of Israel had been dispersed in Egypt. I don't know if you've ever read it that closely, but they had. They had to be gathered because they were sent out all into Egypt to gather straw. So Moshe has to gather them up. 
And then he has to prepare them to go into the promised land. Yeshua is about to do the opposite. He's got his gathered little flock, his 12 that are representing the 12 tribes. But now he's preparing them to go back out, to be dispersed again, out into the wilderness of the peoples. It's also called the wilderness of Egypt and prophecy. So they, they were doing the same thing kind of in reverse, though. Moshe is gathering and Yeshua is about to disperse. But they, they both realized they have a little flock. In fact, Moses had been practicing with his father-in-law's sheep, which prepared him to be the shepherd of the father's sheep. So, so let's go to John 15. Let's go back to the same passage. Just read it in John 15 again. Here's what he says to prepare them. And this is so important to us because I hear a lot of complaining when things don't go our way. I hear a, a lot of belly aching when we don't have the things that we used to have before we found Yeshua in the Torah. Well, here's what Yeshua says to us in John 15, 18. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. Remember what the word does? It puts things in order. So he says, remember the word that I said to you. Remember how I put things in order for you. A slave is not greater than his master. We might also say servant. Sometimes slave isn't a great translation if you look at the, the context of at least a Hebrew servant. They weren't slaves. So let's just say a servant. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So here Yeshua is putting us back in order. When we start complaining, it's as if we're telling Yeshua, I don't deserve to have people gossip about me. I don't deserve to get a hard time for my boss when I ask him for Shabbat off or Passover off. I don't, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that my, my children think I'm crazy. Or I don't deserve that my parents and my brothers and sisters think I'm crazy. Well, Yeshua's brothers and sisters thought he was crazy too. He's saying, don't you remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they didn't understand what Yeshua was doing, what in the world makes you think that people are going to understand what we're doing until he puts the word in order for them? So this is why we need to be really cautious about complaining when we have to suffer a little bit for the sake of the kingdom. He's saying, you're no better than I am. Why are you trying to put yourself ahead of me? You think that following me, you're not supposed to have any hard times? You think following me, you're not supposed to suffer, be ridiculed, be taunted, be scorned, be talked about, be misunderstood, be misrepresented, be misquoted, be quoted out of context? Have they ever done that to you? Doesn't feel good, does it? Didn't feel good to Yeshua either, but we're not better than he is. So we should expect that. Rather than complain about it, we should expect it. And you're saying, well, that's a hard road to hoe down south. It is a hard road to hoe when we're misunderstood, misrepresented. And sometimes it is because they hate the Father. But just put it back in the context of, of biblical hate. Often biblical hate is not the hate we're thinking of. Sometimes in the Bible, hate means simply to love less. Like Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? In that context and in that time period, it didn't mean he literally hated Esau. It meant that he preferred Jacob over Esau because Esau was completely a self-server. Jacob was a kingdom server. So it, it, he loves all his creatures, but some he loves less than others when they, when they misbehave. And so often I think our Western ideas of what love and hate are get in our way of understanding that. But he says, you know what? The people who persecute you, it's not as if they're going to be people who don't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They might be among those who persecute you because those were the ones who really persecuted Yeshua. They did not yet prefer the kingdom of heaven over their own kingdoms. So put that on your what I should expect in the upcoming year list. I should expect to be persecuted. 
not for things I do that are silly, not for consequences of my my silly actions or unthinking actions or my tantrums. No, that's who cares if you're persecuted for that. You just got to fix that. Okay, that's not up to heaven to fix. That's up to you to fix. It's up to you to be the prosecutor in that case and say, you know what? I did something silly. I sinned. I transgressed. I, I, I said things out of line. I gossiped. I did this. I did that. You fix that. But see, if you're being persecuted for the word, now you've ratcheted things up a level. You're not being persecuted for your own sin or silliness. Now you're being persecuted for the sake of Messiah. Now you're being persecuted for the sake of the kingdom. And doesn't that sound like a great thing to have happen to you? Yeah. I I mean, I believe it. It's just, I don't like it either. If you're saying, I don't like that, could you stop talking about those things? I would love to stop talking about those things, but I can't because I'm here to warn you today so that when they do occur, you're not going to be surprised. You're not going to be blindsided. You're going to stop and ask yourself, am I being persecuted right here because I did something silly? I did or said something I shouldn't have done. Or am I being persecuted for the sake of Yeshua? Am I being persecuted for the sake of the word and his testimony? If so, I win, I win, I win. This is part of inheriting the kingdom. He says, all these things are going to do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. And this is what we're going to focus on, what they do not know. And it's what they do not know is who they do not know. Because Solomon had wisdom, he had understanding, but there's a glaring omission of knowing or knowledge. We're going to go into that. And so he goes on, he says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me. Seen there, it means more than just laid eyes on. It means they understood. They knew what they were seeing. They understood what they were seeing and they hated me and my father as well. Because Yeshua, the Messiah, and the image of the father that they had, well, as it turned out, they weren't the same. Their personal idea of who God is didn't match up with who he actually is. Their personal idea of what a Messiah should be didn't sync with what they thought a Messiah should do. And this happens to us every day. We have the way that we think things should go and be, but then we get really upset when they don't go the way we think they should. And we get really upset. We can watch the news and we can say, oh man, our nation is just sliding into sin. This is no good. We don't have good leaders. And we bellyache and we're afraid and we're we're born and we're here, there, and, and we get anxious. And he's saying, now, wait a minute. Who do you think's in charge of all this? You think these fools are in charge of your nation? Who do you think put them there? What is he doing? He's testing to see who hates him. He's testing to see who hates Yeshua. And so it's going to be our job not to get caught up in that testing and allow it to become something that's actually testing us. We don't really, that's not really our test. Our test is going to be the father's in charge of this. And I accept that this is the path that he has set before us. It's my job to pray for those in authority over me and to obey the father in heaven. But we can get so caught up in worrying about what governments are doing or what systems, medical systems are doing or what police systems are doing or what sports systems are doing. And I can get upset about that. I can. But then I have to say, all this is in the Father's hands because he's making a distinction. He's finding out who will love him and who will hate him. Because those who love him say, Father, this probably isn't the way I would have chosen. If I were God, I would do this much differently. He's going to say, okay, probably, yeah. If if you were God, you would do it much differently, but you're not, and we aren't. He's saying, watch. Watch what I'm doing. Don't hate me without a cause. Just watch what I'm doing. I'm giving them an opportunity to change and accept me for who I am, rather than only wanting to worship somebody who does what they want. And how are we supposed to deal with this? 
when we look around and say, oh, Father in heaven, are you not in charge here? What's going on? He says, yes, I'm perfectly in charge. Everything's under control right now. The more it looks like it's out of control, the more you can bet he's in control, that he's pulling the strings here. But Yeshua said, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. See how he takes you right back to Genesis 1-1 in the beginning? He says, you know what? If you're with me, you were there in the beginning. I don't remember it, but apparently I was there because I'm with him. I want to test about Yesh- testify about Yeshua. I want the spirit of truth. I want the helper to help me understand the scriptures so that I can act based on it is written instead of I feel I think I want, because I think I feel I want ends up making me God. But see, I love the Father. So I want all of my thinks and feels and wants to be subject to the spirit of truth. I only want what the spirit wants. I only want to think what the spirit thinks. I only want to feel what the spirit wants me to feel. And and this is how he begins to change the way that we think. Then we begin to accept that we are not greater than our master. That yes, if if we agree that he is Elohim, he is the creator from the beginning, and he is in charge of things, then there's going to be many in the world who do hate us without a cause. There's no reason to hate us for simply accepting the way that we were created. And more and more, the world thinks it's okay not to accept the way that they were created. They think they are God. So I did some bullet points. Remember what Yeshua said, remember the word that I said to you. Remember the way I put things in order. A slave, a servant is not greater than his master. So Yeshua is speaking to us across these generations. And he's saying, nevertheless, no matter what's going on around you, the word will set in order the things you need to remember. If you are going out to testify about Yeshua and his commandments, this word will set things in order and wash you each day. Now, if others are refusing to receive that word, and they mistreat us, then we should not expect any better treatment than our master, who was also rejected for the word because he was the word. Yeshua made a distinction between those of his generation who heard, saw, and believed in him, and those who heard, saw, and hated him. (laughs) He says, you know, they saw. It means they understood. And he says, now they have sin, because what they wanted me to be is what they preferred over what I am. What they want God to be, what they prefer him to be, is not okay. Because now that they have seen him reflected in the son, they hate the father. They say, that's not the God we want to serve. We want God to do it this way. He says, as we're waiting, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, he's able to help the disciples of Yeshua testify about him in spite of persecution, because the power in it is the truth. That's something that the haters are never going to have. They're never going to have the complete truth. They're never going to accept the truth. They rejected in Yeshua's day. It was rejected all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So if you're speaking truth, you should probably go ahead and expect to be rejected and hated and ranked lower in worth or looked over for promotions. You should expect it to affect your life. And it's going to seem as though it's affecting your life adversely. The opposite is true. The opposite is true because you are inheriting the kingdom. These are the kingdoms of men that we're trying to function in. If you're looking for a job promotion, you're looking for it from the kingdom of a human being. If you're looking for self-esteem, you're looking for it from the kingdom of a human being. If you're looking to win and to be competitive, you're looking for it in the arena of human beings. And Yeshua is saying, no way, the kingdom, not that kingdom. You're thinking kingdom because you're thinking of all these beast kingdoms. The kingdom, the, the only kingdom that will stand. He's saying, if if you know the Father, he's going to give you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to give you that power of the Spirit, which will protect you with truth. And that's what we said, uh, I think, in class this week is, you know what? We get so busy fighting the beast because the beast 
prowls and he growls and he he lunges and he he threatens and he's got slobber coming out of the side of his mouth and fire coming out of his eyes and we're, we're so totally distracted railing against the beast we don't realize that the snake has already wound itself around our ankles <laughs> and that's why you you have to be careful how much emphasis you put upon what's going on in the world you need to know what's going on in the kingdom more than you need to know that what's going on in the kingdoms of human beings. Yeshua goes on, he says, those who persecute his little flock for the word and for their testimony of Yeshua will be the ones who do not know the Father. And he doesn't make a distinction. These can be, these could be atheists, they could be agnostics, they could be religious people, they could come from any denomination, from any religion. But if they persecute you for the word of truth and the testimony of Yeshua, it is because they do not know the Father, period. They do not know him. But if you do know him and you testify of him, then you have been with him from the beginning. Your testimony began in Genesis 1.1, not Matthew 1.1. So there's three spirits. If you've, if you've done workbook one, you're right here with me. You're, you're right on point. But as you look at the, that typical creation gospel menorah that's labeled with the seven spirits of Adonai listed in Isaiah, you know that the first two are going to be wisdom and understanding. And those are over on the fall side. We, we divide over into that. One side is going to be the spring feasts, and the other side of the menorah is going to represent the fall feasts. So you'll have Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits of the barley on one side. And then you'll have uh, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, Yom HaKippurim, and Sukkot on the other side. Those will be the fall feasts. Well, wisdom and understanding are located in the spring side of the menorah around Passover, unleavened bread. And then they, they kind of mature a little bit into a spirit called Itza in Hebrew, which is counsel in English. And if you'll notice this description of King Solomon was heavy with wisdom. And in English, we have everything backward from what it actually means in scripture, because wisdom is always seen as how to apply the knowledge. Well, it's just the opposite. Chokhmah, what is translated as wisdom, is actually the raw information. It's, it's the new. It's where you start from. And then understanding, or bina, tells you how to take that wisdom and begin to use it. It's uh, like a wise woman builds her house. Bina means to build, okay? So, chokhmah, raw information, and then bina, the ability to build with that information by sorting, categorizing, ordering, separating, cutting, attaching. Think of building a house. Everything you have to do from finding the raw materials, crafting those materials, and then assembling those materials. So, that is going to be wisdom and understanding. But knowledge is all the way on the other side of the menorah. And you say, well, how come these things kind of stick together in scripture? It'll often mention wisdom and understanding and knowledge together or uh, understanding and knowledge or wisdom and knowledge. Why are they often together like that? It's because knowledge is the mature form. It's wisdom and understanding that have continued growing in the spirit until they reach that place of maturity called da'at in Hebrew, da'at. It means knowledge. And it's not just the raw information. It's intimate knowledge. Remember, Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It's two becoming one. So this is where you have taken that raw information, you've built things with it, you've grown in it, and now you have grown to a place where you know how to apply it use it, sacrifice for it, practice it. It's what you become, not just the information that you have acquired. All those facts that you acquired with wisdom and understanding, now as you reach that level of knowledge, of knowing, of sacrifice, now it becomes part of who you are. It's just like that relationship between Adam and Eve was a, a relationship of knowledge, to becoming one. And so da'at, or knowledge, is this sacrificial, mature love. And that's what Yeshua says. All these things they will do to you for my name's sake, they will think they're doing his work. This is because they do not know the one who sent me. It's because they don't know the Father. 
and they don't really know his commandments because they have not achieved an intimacy with them that they can't know Yeshua. They have misunderstood Yeshua because they misunderstand the Father because they misunderstand his words. So now we can see a little crack in King Solomon's reign. He's full of wisdom. He has understanding. Probably no man who's ever lived other than Yeshua knew more than Melech Shlomo, right? But with all that wisdom and understanding, where is the knowledge? Where is the intimacy with the Holy One? Because this intimacy is achieved by walking in the Holy Spirit. See, the Spirit is not a feeling. I know we've been conditioned to think the Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh is a feeling. It is not. Feelings come from the realm of the soul. A soul ecstasy is not the move of the Spirit. Remember, the Spirit, he says, is a spirit of truth, not a spirit of feeling. The Holy Spirit is based on, it is written, not I feel. Your soul works on, I feel, I think I want. And you say, well, what if I feel that the Torah is not to be done, believed? What if I feel like it it shouldn't have the power attributed to it that you're telling me? What if I believe or what if I feel that the Torah is not to be understood anymore, that it's been done away with? What if I feel that it's not to be obeyed as the testimony of Yeshua? Well, again, it doesn't really matter how you feel. That's not a conversation opener with most people. Uh, Might put that right there, but the Holy Spirit is about truth. It is written. And see, if you can be deceived into thinking how you feel is actually a reflection of the Spirit, then you can make all sorts of mistakes. You might go to a service and think, well, you know, the Spirit wasn't there. I didn't feel anything. Who said you have to feel something? Was there truth there? Was it conducted according to the Word? Then sometimes you won't feel anything. Sometimes it is a still, small voice. But we need to quit trying to force our souls to do the work of the Spirit or the Spirit to do the work of the soul. Because this added measure that Yeshua said he would send of the Holy Spirit, and every human being has a measure of it, by the way, or you'd be dead. Every human being has a measure of the Spirit of Adonai. But you need more. It's like those 10 virgins. You have to have more. And this comes through suffering. You have to press the olive to get the oil out of the olive, or you're not going to have extra. See, if you're not willing to be pressed, you won't have extra oil. If you're not willing to suffer for the sake of the kingdom, you're not going to have the extra oil. And Yeshua says, I'm going to send you this extra measure of the Rach HaKodesh. You're going to need it. But you know what? Because of the pressure. It's because of the pressure. If you allow yourself to be pressured for the sake of the kingdom more, then there's more oil that will flow. And it's just like the parables that Yeshua would tell how you know the one who invested well was given more. The lazy servant who just hid what he was given, even what he had was taken away. And we're not talking about even salvation here. We are talking about how you walk in the washing of the word. But I think that the point here is it's quite possible that Adonai could give us as human beings extraordinary amounts of wisdom and understanding of the world around us and his commandments. But we never mature to know him. We could have all wisdom and understanding, but what if we don't know him sacrificially? What if we've never experienced this sacrificial love? I love him so much. I will give up this job promotion. I love him so much. I will set aside his Shabbat. I love him so much. I will keep his feasts. I love him so much. I will find a way to minister to the poor, to the needy, to the sick, to the orphans. Because so many times I think we mistake. We think our ability to set the word in order, to quote the word, to reference the word, to connect the word, to parse the Hebrew, we think that is knowledge, and it is not. If all that does not lead us to knowing the one who gave it to us, we can be as wise as King Solomon living in places of idolatry. And this is what happened to King Solomon. He started allowing idolatrous sacrifice. And and here's what Yeshua says in Matthew 6.25. He says, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? But if God so clothes the grass of the field 
which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. See, the Father knows you. He has sacrificed for you. He has given his son for you. He knows you need them. And so what's the difference here? Yeshua says, King Solomon, I mean, he spoke about birds and animals. He set those things in order. But what Yeshua says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they are? And King Solomon, he could afford the most expensive clothes in the whole world at that time. And Yeshua says to his disciples, who clearly aren't wearing the robes of Solomon when he spoke this, he says, why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil. They don't spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. And you're thinking, if you're his disciple and you're sitting there listening to Yeshua and you're thinking, uh, how does a lily of the field have a faith that exceeds a human being's? Well, he's saying it's there's a glory that goes with just simply trusting the creator to take care of you. If you know you're his and you know he knows you and you know him, then it's not really a thing. You just take for granted that he's going to clothe you and feed you and give you a place to lay your head. And that's the glory of a bird. That's one thing that Solomon must have missed with all his wisdom is that they trust the Father to feed them. They're not greater than their master. They're not greater than their creator. It's human beings who uniquely among the creation, we behave as if we are greater than our master. And when we do that, we lose our glory. His glory clothes us when we come up from our washing. You know, even a shorn flock coming up from their washing, they're not naked. They're clothed in the good shepherd's glory. Remember the appearance of Yeshua's hair in the book of Revelation? It's like white wool. It's full of glory. Well, he's covering us with his glory. Not even King Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like we are, if we will trust him like a lily or a bird. So King Solomon, he's wiser. He's more understanding than maybe any human being. And with all that, it sounds like he ran short on something that's really crucial, and that's da'at, it's knowledge. His father, David, man, did he sacrifice, and did he grow close to the father? His kingdom didn't have the splendor of Solomon's, but whereas King David unified the tribes, it would be Solomon's actions that would split them one generation later. So Solomon did not trust the father to protect and to provide for his kingdom. Instead, he starts forming all these treaties with all his wisdom. He forms treaties with all these nations. And back then, what would happen? Well, these kings would send their their daughters and seal the deal with these treaties. Women were just property to be traded around. And the idea was, well, I'll send you my daughter. You'll marry her. And you're less likely to attack me if we're family. That was short form of the thinking on that. And so he makes all these so-called wise treaties, and he ends up with hundreds of foreign concubines and wives to seal these deals because he didn't trust. He understood the Torah, but he violated it because the Torah says, don't go back to Egypt for horses to build your military. Solomon did exactly that. In fact, he married the daughter of Pharaoh. He knew a lot about the plants and the beasts. He was a scientist. He was a biologist. He was a botanist. He put all these things in order, but he couldn't put his own household in order because now these foreign wives, they're sacrificing to foreign gods. And that's that's not to make fun of King Solomon by any means. I'm sure, you know, spiritually, he's still <laughs> so far ahead of anything we can comprehend. But I think the text was written in such a way to instruct us. Wisdom and understanding have to be perfected in knowledge. And how will we know that we're perfecting it in knowledge? It's how we grow in our faith that our Creator will provide us every needed thing. This generation has access to the word that's unprecedented in the history of the world. We've got access to more information than any other generation ever has. And what has happened? We don't know Him. 
We're wise, we're understanding, but not so much in the word. We're not maturing in it. And that's what he said to the, the assembly at Laodicea in Revelation 3. He says, because you say I'm rich and I become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know, remember there, no, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me or to acquire, in Hebrew, the word buy and acquire, the same word. I advise you to acquire from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I have to anoint your eyes so that you may see, so you may understand. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. How are you going to get these clothes? Grow up. That's what he's saying. You get these clothes by knowing him, by seeing with the eyes of the Rock HaKodesh. That's why you need Isaac. You're not understanding his way. You're trying to make him understand your way. And he says, no, I want you to understand my way. I want you to be like a lily of the field. They don't sit around debating whether they should be white, purple, red, blue this year. That's not their job. They don't debate what color to be. They just grow. They just flower. And sometimes, you know, we'll sit around and we'll debate, what's the real meaning of this verse? What's the real calendar? What's the real pronunciation of the name? What's the real? So many times we end up being scornful of people, taunting people who just don't meet our standards, who don't know as much as we do. Well, what we're saying is, I've got wisdom, I've got understanding, but you know what? You might have just skipped right over knowledge. This may not be happening because you know and love the Father. You can disguise it in sincerity and truth, but you know what? It's time to get the chametz out. And if we're using our insights into the word to taunt people, to insult people, to do the things to them that they're supposed to be doing to us, if we're disciples of Yeshua, they're supposed to be taunting us. They're supposed to be ridiculing us. They're supposed to be regarding us lightly. We're not supposed to be doing it to them. That's not what Yeshua taught. He says, they do it to you if you follow after me. If you're doing it to them, you got chametz. You've got leaven. Chametz is, is something that turns sour, and it will make you a sour human being. The very commandments that should be giving, like he says, the Father gladly gives you these things. Well, we have the commandments. We should have them gladly. We should treat them with joy. These commandments are to nurture faith, to nurture loving relationships. We have to examine our own hearts for how we're treating others with the commandments. Are we beating up fellow servants? And none of us <laughs> is Yeshua or the Father. And when this happens, it's not a refining fire. It's just a fire. It doesn't result in any glory to anyone. It's just a way of feeding your self-righteousness. And that's what Yeshua said. I came to this generation, a pretty self-righteous generation. They understood. They saw what I was doing and what I was saying. And because they preferred their self-righteousness, they rejected me. Because they preferred their self-righteousness, they hated the Father. Look, folks, we can't afford to enter into this season hating the Father because we love our ways more, because we like our self-esteem more. The refining fire will singe us. It will consume the parts of us that we would call chametz or leaven. And that's why in Jewish communities, you burn it in fire before Passover. We need to re-examine our scripture debates. Are they driving people away from knowing the Father? Are we so competitive about being right that we're actually obstructing the goal, which is bring people to know and to love the Father? And if they know and love Him, then they'll know and love people. Those riches can only be acquired with sacrifice. Walking in the Word is something that will require a sacrifice because you have to practice it. Practicing is never fun. If you've played sports, you know what I'm talking about. Practicing is never fun. But if you'll practice, it will become part of you. And then you will just instinctively do the right things when it counts. And so often we're just like, well, where is the Holy Spirit today? Where is the Holy Spirit today? Well, I don't want to find out at the judgment that he could have given me more than I had. And the reason he didn't is because I obstructed it by refusing to mature. Maturity is knowing the Father in Yeshua. And so we have to be careful about endless debates. There's a place for learning, bouncing things off one another, those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, it's if it's not helping us to know Yeshua and the fellowship of his suffering, I don't know how much good it is. Because we can be as wise as King Solomon. 
We can be as understanding as King Solomon and still be dumber than a flower or a bird. See, Moses understood he was an Israelite. You think you know everything about the tribes and what's happening in the world today? Moses understood he was an Israelite and he killed two men. But you know what? When he knew the Holy One, he led the flock of Israel from death to life and he suffered for them. You know, there was an Israelite who had the wisdom of the name Yod Hey Vav Hey, knew how to pronounce it apparently. You know what? He blasphemed it. But you know what? Knowing Yod Hey Vav Hey led Caleb and Joshua to lead the flock of Israel to the pasture and across the Jordan. So, yeah, Yeshua saying, Hey, look, little flock. What you understand, what you believe, what you have faith in, what you practice, it'll cost you some self-esteem. It'll cost you some money, some friendships, some job promotions, scorn, opportunities, certain hobbies. (laughs) And I hope it does cost you a trip to Magic Kingdom because you're going to be looking for the kingdom. You need to be looking for those kind of clothes because these are This is the glory and the riches that we cannot purchase with money. You can only acquire those riches and those clothes with your faith and the one who created you. It's not like a salvation garment alone. Knowing Yeshua and acquiring his robe of righteousness is going to cost you something. That's why the, the five virgins were told, go buy you some oil. We can't suffer for you. We can't bring you into that intimate knowledge of Yeshua. We can't bring you in to know the bridegroom. Like Yeshua said, depart from me. I never knew you. You did all this stuff in my name. I never knew you. What did you sacrifice for me? So this little flock, we're going to come up from our washing. That's the prophecy. Until then, we have to be really careful because until Messiah returns, we're told, especially in in the later books of the New Testament, that there will be those who dress up in sheep's clothing, and the only reason they will come to your Passover, the only reason they'll come to your Shavuot, the only reason they'll come to your Sukkot, is to try to pull the wool over your eyes. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.